Well, listen, this morning I get the opportunity to uh, introduce a guest speaker for us. Uh, this is Steve Garcia, and Steve is no stranger to Northwest Community Church, been here several times. Um, his father-in-law is uh, Ronnie over there, Ronnie Lau, and uh, his wife, Kate, is leading worship for the uh, women's retreat that I mentioned before. So that's where she is. So Steve and his family, his two boys, they had been planning on coming down here for months. So it was a neat opportunity to have him uh, be able to share this morning. Steve's a pastor out in Colorado and uh, has been one of my very best friends since I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. So Steve and I were two little New Jersey boys just wandering around, lost and Lonely, um, that sounded really weird. I'll just stop it right there. But no, honestly, I wanna share with you guys uh, you know, that I went to a very secular um, public high school, didn't have hardly any Christian friends at all. And it was the student ministry that I was involved with that I met Steve. He actually was about 30 minutes away from me, so didn't even live close, didn't go to the same school. But, um, but God used our friendship, even from a very young age, uh, throughout middle school, late middle school and high school and college and beyond, to really be one of the men that, that sharpens me and encourages me when I needed it. And, um, and I can honestly say, just knit together at the soul. I used that illustration in first service, and it sounds really weird, but it's true. As guys, even, we need to have other guys that we can share anything with and can uh, you know, sharpen us and be there for us. And Steve has been that friend um, to me for a long, long time. So it's been really neat uh, to see how God has used his life and bringing he and Kate together and seeing them married and how God has uh, blessed them um, in ministry. And so it's just really exciting for me this morning to get to introduce two friends, right? So like Steve's been my best friend for a long time and I'm excited to introduce uh, Steve to all of you guys, this community, you know? So, so it's really neat to be able to uh, introduce you and I know you guys are gonna be blessed um, by this man and by his message this morning. So let's give this guy a Northwest Community Church welcome. Thank you. It's tremendous to be with all of you. North Carolina is a great place to be. It's good to be back here. This is a, a place that's very special to me. Uh, my wife and I were married here in North Carolina. Uh, of course, we've got family here. Uh, my parents live over in uh, Garner and... Uh, of course, Ronnie and, and Debbie, and uh, we're, we're, we're just so thankful that our, all of our parents can, can be in the same area when we come to visit. And, uh, you know, also seeing, seeing Jerry, he's uh, probably been the single most influential person in my spiritual life that, that I, I know. And, uh, but it's also good to be back here at Northwest. This is the church that I choose to attend when I'm visiting from out of town. So it's an, it's an honor to be here. Uh, you know, Jerry was sh sharing some stories. <clears throat> I have very fond memories of uh, the two of us growing up and went to these little small churches in New Jersey. Jerry's dad's church was really small, uh, like 14 people <laughs> small. <laughs> and so I'd sl sleep over his house on a Saturday night, and if you're going to church with him on Sunday, you had a job in church the next day. You're either uh, reading scripture or praying, sometimes singing solos, regardless of whether or not you had musical ability. And uh, one, of the, one of the skills that I think Jerry honed in those times was recruiting of volunteers, because each year we would, have, uh, we would participate in this 
powerfully dramatic uh, Easter presentation where we would act out the famous picture of Jesus um, <laughs> at the Last Supper. But do the math, Jesus had 12 disciples. So if everybody in the church is in the, in the production, then you are literally dealing with an audience of one. So <laughs> Jerry would <laughs> recruit all, all his ragtag buddies, and we're up there with the kind of hard-hitting drama, the likes of which Broadway could only dream of. Um, but no, we, we had some good times together and thankful for the friendship, thankful, thankful for this church. So enough of introduction, let's get into it. Uh, my message this morning is for anybody in here who's going through a trial. I just believe that all of us carry with us an invisible backpack. And inside are things like pain and anxiety and guilt, frustration, and we all carry those things into this room. And so I think on some level, we're all going through a trial. But you know, you know your life, and there are certain seasons where it, it's, it's more manageable, and then there's other seasons where you feel like you could barely keep your head up above water. And, and my hope this morning is that we can, we can hear from the Word of God and, and, and be encouraged by the fact that what if God is wanting to do something in your circumstances, that's bigger than you and bigger than the immediacy of your situation. And so I want to jump in. We're going to look at the Old Testament book of Daniel. So you could turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to uh, Daniel chapter 3. We're going to jump right in into the first verse. And let's hear from, from the Word of God. It says, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Here's the backdrop. God's people, people of Israel, were ripped out of their homeland when the Babylonians came and destroyed everything, and they were exiled and transplanted into a new culture with a new language, new foods, new customs, and plenty of new gods to worship. And there was a couple of men who somehow were able to maintain their faith despite immense pressure from the culture. Daniel, whom the book is named after, and three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but you might know them better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And despite the fact that all pressure was against these guys to conform to the place they were living, they were able to maintain their faith in God. And as a result, they were actually promoted up within the kingdom. They had high government ranks with high influence. And then you have this king... Nebuchadnezzar, who has an interesting relationship with God, if you look at the end of Daniel 2, it ends with him having a front row seat to the miracle of God, and he, he literally says, surely you're the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Pretty good endorsement. And then it all comes unraveling in Daniel 3. And life is like that, isn't it? It's going great until it isn't. And all it takes is one thing, right? A phone call, uh, a tragic choice and everything comes unraveled, and you find yourself in a trial. And that's exactly what was taking place in the lives of these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar goes from worshiping God to making them. And so he creates this, this statue that's about 90 feet tall and about 9 feet wide. And to give you some context, it's, it's about the same size as the Christ the Redeemer statue that looms over Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. 
That can give you some scale and some immensity to the size of this thing. This was likely an image of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so he sets it up in the plain so that everyone could see it. It's unobstructed. There's no buildings. There's no trees. There's no mountains. As far as the eye could see, it's going to be flat except for this giant 90-foot statue of the king. And so a herald proclaims, look at verse 4, Uh, Let's see, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So this is a who's who gathering in. The message goes out to the massive reach of the Babylonian Empire all over. Everybody come on down to the plain. From all walks of life, we got every level of government. You got the mayors, you got the sheriffs, you got... The, the entertainers, the magicians, the musicians, the artists, everybody, thousands and thousands of people all gathering to dedicate this image. And verse 5, here's the, here's the proclamation. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So what a scene, Right? Thousands upon thousands of people, as far as your eyes could see. This is how it worked. There's the, the sound of the crowd, you know, the, the, the ambiance of when all people gather together, and all of a sudden an instrument starts, and the crowd starts to get quiet, and the mood is set. And then another instrument layers on top of that one, and then another one on top of that one, and the music continues to build and build and build until it hits this swell. And in this moment, everybody stops. The musicians stop. The people stop. And everybody falls face down to worship this image of gold. And there is just one more thing. Look at verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship immediately will be thrown in a blazing furnace. So there's that. Can you imagine the planning meeting for this? The king says, hey, I got this idea. I want to make a giant statue of myself, and I'm going to get everybody to worship it. What do you think? Some of the people are like, "Uh, I don't know. Okay, well, what if we threaten them with death? Will that work? (laughs) There we go. Okay, can you imagine if that's what this church did, right? Come to church or die. It's like, wow, attendance is booming this morning. This is amazing. Okay, this is called conversion by the sword, okay? You know, it's interesting when you look at some of the images in places like North Korea, for example, Or you see these people who are falling down in front of pictures and murals of of Kim Jong-un. It's the same thing. They carry this fear. They they believe he's a god. This is nothing new. Kings have wanted to be worshipped as gods for centuries, even dating back to this. And so all of the people have been given this proclamation, do it or die. And then you've got these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three guys were willing to put their lives on the line for what they ate. Just a few chapters earlier in Daniel, they they took a stand that they didn't want food from the king's table at great personal risk. They were willing to stand up for what they ate. How do you think they're going to respond when somebody says, worship a false god? You better believe none of them are doing that. They're locking arms and they're remaining standing. And when you have thousands of people down on their face, it's pretty easy to identify who are the people who are standing. It's almost the exact opposite of what's happening with the NFL protests now, right? People who are taking a knee when everyone is standing, these guys were standing while everyone else was kneeling. And so they're identified and they're snatched up and they're brought before 
King Nebuchadnezzar, and he, he tries to intimidate them. Let's jump on down to uh, verse 15. Look at the second part of this. He, he says, the king, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. You almost get the sense that he's trying to give these guys a second chance. Like, so are you ready now? Yeah, I don't know what was going on back there, but maybe now you're ready. Maybe something changed. Maybe getting in the presence of the king. Are you ready now? Because here's the thing. These were three of his best guys. He loses if these three guys die. I mean, anybody in here who, who manages people, this is like, like your three top performing employees. You don't want to lose them. This would be like the Panthers trying to, trying, to, trying to win without their starting quarterback, running back, wide receiver. This would be like uh, the three family members that you got to have. You know, when you're planning the event, you find out that they can't be there, you rearrange because we got to have them there. These three guys were, were influential and they, they had a strong work ethic and King Nebuchadnezzar knew it. And so you almost, you almost get the sense he's saying, so, so you're ready now? I mean, you guys don't even have to believe it. Just do it. You know, I, I encountered an interesting um, ethical dilemma years ago. My wife and I, we uh, adopted both of our, our boys, our oldest from Russia, but at the time, we were looking at different countries to adopt from, and there was one in the Middle East, and one of the, the qualifications in order to see the adoption go through was that in court, you literally had to convert to Islam. And I remember just thinking through that. I mean, it, it was never a strong consideration, but I remember thinking through it like, is that something that we could do for the sake of adopting a child? Can I just give it lip service? You know, knowing that I didn't believe it in my heart, but just kind of jump through the hoop just to get it over and done with. I have to imagine that that was at least a consideration with these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What if we just got down? We don't have to believe it. We're just doing this because everyone else is doing it. But that is not how they responded. Look at how they respond, verse 17. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So they took a stand. They said, one place you're not going to find us is worshiping a false god. And what's interesting is that the the, the main reason of why the people of God were exiled from their hometown was because they were worshiping idols. And it was as if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying, we're not going to repeat the same thing that got us here in the first place. It stops right here. So throw at us what you want. Have at us. But we are not bowing down to this false god. And just like that, they find themselves in a trial. Now, I just believe there's two things about trials, and here's the first one. That God will very often lead us right into the fire. And sometimes, for me, I, when, I, when I struggle with trials, I'm wondering, what is God doing to me? And perhaps God is wanting to do something through me. I find myself in one, even now, you know, I... I, I as Jerry mentioned, work at a church out in Colorado, and my role there is I oversee our family ministries of birth through 
a graduation, so all of the teams that lead our kids and our, our student ministries. And so it's a, it's a job that keeps me, me very busy, and uh, so I take Mondays off. My weekends are pretty much spent <laughs> with church between Saturday and Sunday. And so one Monday morning, about six months ago, my phone rings at about 7 a.m., and it's one of the elders from our church. I think, okay, this is weird. So I pick it up, and I answer. And he says, hey, we're going to need you to, to come down for, for a meeting. Something's going on. I'm like, okay, a Monday morning meeting at 7 a.m.? I'm like, you, you got to give me more than this. You can't, you can't be vague on the phone with this, right? I'm like, what's happening? He says, well, our, our lead pastor has confessed his immoral issues, and we need to talk about the future. And so I, I drive down knowing something, something is going on and quickly realize that our, our lead pastor had a moral failure and needed to step down. Just like that, we're in the fire. And we're, try, we're in full, full crisis mode. You know, and, and on top of a full-time job that I already have, I'm now adding on top of it all kinds of responsibilities from helping lead our church through crisis, lead our staff through crisis. I'm, I'm a part of our leadership team at the church, and, <clears throat> and so we have to carefully walk people through this situation. People come to church just like anything is normal, and then all of a sudden find out that their beloved lead pastor has stepped down. You can imagine thousands of questions, people making up their own stories, and, and we found ourselves in a fire. And it became increasingly difficult, especially as, as some of the attacks started coming our way. You know, I, I know everybody grieves differently. Some people cry. Some people get mad. Uh, some people just try to perspective their way on and, and, and move forward. But, man, if, if, if you could only see some of, the, some of the notes that people wrote us, some of the nastiest things I ever heard. Attacks at me, and I remember thinking, I wasn't the one who did anything. I'm trying to pick up the pieces of somebody else's disaster. How am I the one getting attacked? And I, I'm, so, I'm so frustrated. I'm like, man, I, I'm about ready to quit. I am I'm out of here. And I just sensed God speaking into me. I was just saying, hold on. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to teach you something. It's a messed up circumstance, but I'm trying to teach you something. I just sensed that God was, was up to something more than just the difficulty of the moment. And it was right around that same time that I was reading about a missionary right around the turn of the 20th century by the name of A.W. Milne. And this guy felt a, a calling on his life to go and reach the unreached people of the South Pacific. He was living in Scotland at the time. And so he, he sensed this calling and all of his friends told him, don't go. Those people are savages. They're cannibals, they're headhunters. This region of the world is known as the white man's graveyard. That there's been plenty of missionaries who have gone over and they've been killed upon arrival. Don't do it. But against all of their advice, he decided to go. Why? Because this is what he signed up for when he decided to follow Jesus. Anybody in here who's a Christ follower, this is what you signed up for. Because Jesus said, anyone who wants to follow me must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow. The cross was a symbol of death. The invitation Jesus gives us is an invitation to death. If you're a Christian in here, this is what you signed up for. You didn't sign up for the party planning committee. You signed up for the death committee. 
Put that on a clipboard and pass it around the room. Who wants to sign up for the death committee? This is exactly what Christ has called us to. And this is what he called A.W. Milne to. And so what he did was he gathered all of his belongings and he packed them in a coffin and bought a one-way ticket to the South Pacific. Why? Because he already died. You can't kill somebody who's already dead. And sure enough, he died among these people. But it wasn't upon his arrival. It was 20 years after getting there and having a massive impact on people who've never heard the hope of Jesus. And you know what these savages wrote on his gravestone? They said, A.W. Mill, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Can you imagine if he just didn't stick it out? He ended up inspiring a, move, a movement of, of radical missionaries who, who referred to themselves as one-way missionaries, who realized they were going to a place to die. Sometimes God will lead us right into the fire. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he was literally leading them into a fire. And so this is how the king responds to them making the stand. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. His attitude toward them changed, which tells me that he was probably feeling like he was being pretty gracious initially, and now that was gone. I mean, he had to feel so betrayed by these guys. After all I've given you, I gave you influence and rank and, and power, and this is how you repay me? Well, let's make it seven times hotter. Anybody who's a parent in this place can some, somehow relate with this, right? That somehow, sometimes this is how you feel about your kids. After all I've done for you, this is how you repay me? Oh, you've you got a problem with being grounded one day? How about being grounded for a year? All right, that goes over real well, doesn't it? Because you're the one who's left to enforce it. So he, he orders this thing seven times hotter. Look at verse 22. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is just a sidebar. But when it comes to the sin in our lives, when you and I sin, there are always unintended consequences. You know, you, you and I often feel like we can keep our sin boxed in and it's just going to affect us. But often the unintended consequences are other people. There are casualties to our decisions. And in this case, three men died and all they were doing were following orders. It was the king's sin that led to these men's death. So these guys die, verse 23. The three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And then what happens next? Rattles the king to his core. So with all these thousands of onlookers watching this moment unfold and the king with full view of the inside of the furnace, look at what happens, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? 
And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. We got a problem. We started with a trio, and now we got a quartet. And they're walking around in there enjoying themselves, looking like a couple of old guys in the sauna at lifetime. They don't seem to be afraid at all. And then look what he says about the fourth one. He says, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, depending on the translation of Scripture you have, it might say an angel of the Lord was in there with him. But, but this was no ordinary angel of the Lord, if angels could be ordinary. Just about every scholar believes that this was Jesus himself. Jesus, before he became a, a cute little baby in the manger, when he took on flesh, the incarnation. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus in the fire. And don't miss this picture, because I think it's a powerful one, that Jesus is in the fire with him. Because in this moment, Jesus could have chose any number of miracles to save these guys. He could have struck the soldiers with blindness, had these guys bumbling around like fools trying to tie up Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He could have sealed the, the furnace shut, embarrassed these guys as they tried to open it to throw them in there. He could have snuffed out the flame, filled the whole plain with smoke, and the three men could have snuck away under the cover of the thick fog. He chose to do none of those things. Instead, Jesus chose to step in the fire with them. And I think this is an encouragement to anyone in here in a trial that I may be thrown in the fire, but I am not alone in the fire. Jesus is with us in the fire. He's with us in the confusion. He's with us in the rejection. He's with us in the depression. He's with us in the classroom, in the boardroom, in the hospital room. He's with us in our consequences. He's with us in our comeback. He is with us in the fire. I may be thrown in the fire, but I am not alone in the fire. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, delivered by Jesus himself. And I think there's two truths about trials. God will lead us into the fire, and God will lead us out. And not always the way that we think. Some of you in here may remember my late mother-in-law, Sue Lau. So several years ago, she was diagnosed with inoperable cancer. And so this is obviously very rattling to our family. And she had this, this mantra that had this, had this powerful effect on, on all who knew her. And it really became kind of a rallying cry even for us. And what she would say is, I'm either going to get healing or heaven, but either way I win. It's good, isn't it? And so for years, we, we, we prayed healing over her in Jesus' name. We prayed that, that God would, would, would do a miracle here and that he would take the cancer and, and do away with it. We, we prayed that a lot. Some of you in this room prayed that over her. I guess a little over two years ago now, we were at her deathbed when she passed from this life into the presence of Jesus. She never got her healing, but she did get heaven. And make no 
mistake, my friends. Heaven is not a consolation prize. Heaven is the grand prize. Do you remember when game shows used to give consolation prizes? This is the prize we are giving to console you in your loss. You know, you didn't get the million dollars and the new car and the dream vacation, but here's the Wheel of Fortune home edition. (laughs) So now every time you play it with your family, you could be reminded that you were a failure on national television. (laughs) Come on. Heaven is not the consolation prize. I love how the Apostle Paul says it in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. He's going to lead us into the fire and he's going to lead us out of the fire. Sometimes when he leads us out of the fire, it's not in this life. But make no mistake, we're coming out of the fire. And we're going to have to endure some trials in this life. But there is a reward for anyone in here who is trusted in Christ Jesus. It's not earned. It's freely given. And if you've never trusted in this Jesus, even now, in the quietness of your heart, you could just simply pray, Jesus, I trust you. I'm tired of being in this fire alone. Jesus, I trust you. You pray that even now, and he will enter into your life in a relationship like a father to a child and make you one of his own. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in this miracle, delivered. Look at verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. That's some interesting language there, right? How things have changed. Servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. And I love this next sentence. I love it for the simplicity and for the imagery. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Is there anybody in here this morning who walked through a trial, Jesus was with you, and you came out of the fire? If he rescued you before, he can rescue you again. We're coming up out of this fire. (laughs) And sometimes we need to tell ourselves that. So they come out, and I I love this because the crowd all gathers around to see what's going on. Verse 27. The satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors, they all crowd around them. And listen to the characteristics of this miracle. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was, my personal favorite, no smell of fire on them. Who's the knucklehead who's sniffing them, Wow, it's amazing, you know. I mean, if I, if I cook s'mores in my backyard for five minutes, it takes me like three days' worth of showers just to get that smell off. These guys came out of this seven times hot fire and didn't even so much as smell like smoke. And so here's, here's the thing that I'm, I'm driving at this morning. This is what I hope you walk away with today. This, this one simple statement that I hope we can, we can grab hold of, and it's simply this. That when we run from the fire, we miss God's desire. When we run from the fire, we miss God's desire. And you know that's true because it rhymes. (laughs) Listen, here's, here's the thing that I've experienced in my own life. Perhaps you've experienced this in yours. Too many of us who claim to be Christ followers, 
at the first sign of difficulty, we're running for the hills. What if God is wanting to do something through you, but it requires you stepping into the fire? I'm just wondering if there's somebody in here this morning who you know that there is a trial that you find yourself in and every instinct you have is to bolt. I bet if I were to ask you, what's the number one thing weighing on you right now, it wouldn't take you five seconds to think about it. I can identify mine. What is it that God is wanting to teach you? I wonder if there's a relationship that requires a hard conversation. I wonder if there's somebody facing a job situation right now that you know is difficult, but it's going to require you to lean in, not run from. I'm just wondering if there's some people in your life who are, who are bringing you down or leading you into some places that you know are no good for you. And maybe God's asking you to take a risk and step out of it. Step out of a situation that is bringing you down. We've got to give God the chance to do his thing. When we run from the fire, we rob God of an opportunity to show up in a powerful way. To show up in a miracle. To do something powerful in our midst. That's, a, that's, that's kind of what the, the Apostle Peter was driving at in, in 1 Peter 1. Look at what he says. He says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And he continues, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. But we got to stick it out. we got to step in. Let's see what God can do. I may be thrown in the fire, but I am not alone in the fire. So my challenge is, just, is for us to just simply ask the question, what is it that God is wanting me to do? And to listen, to listen for his promptings of what to do amidst this trial. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be standing in the fire with Jesus than running free without him. Amen? Yeah, come on, let's pray together. So Jesus, Son of God, we thank you for the fact that you have promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. You've promised that in this world we will have trouble, but for us to take heart because you have overcome the world. Lord, we thank you that every single trial represented by every single person in this room has not caught you off guard. You're not standing behind us, pushing us into it, Lord. You're standing in the fire, beckoning us toward you. And so, God, I pray for anyone in here who's ready to quit, that you would strengthen their resolve, that you'd help them to lean in, not run from. And, Lord, I pray the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And if you believe it in your heart, then somebody pray, amen.